Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 245. On today's show, we talk about bones, buildings, and boxes. Let's dig a little deeper before the sea, before the ice melts and ruins everything. Well, actually, that's like exposing things. So oh, yeah. Let's not digging at all. <laughs> the ice dug. <laughs> the ice dug. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. I, I feel like I should ask you how it's going. It's not going well. <laughs> You'll yeah. probably hear it in your voice. I know. Yeah. We are recording this a little bit late and dropping it late just because I'm sick, but we decided to just do it anyway. Yeah. You know, it, why not? Yeah. We've got a couple topics coming up that we are excited to record. So yeah. this is going to be a news episode today because there's been some cool stuff in the news lately, but then, you know, we've got some others. So we're like, you know what? We're just going to power through, get through the cold. Yep. And record. So here we go. All right. So yeah, this we're just diving right in here. This first one is one of the articles we found is called uh, 5,000 year old mass grave of fallen warriors in Spain shows evidence of sophisticated warfare as if warfare could be sophisticated. <laughs> well, but, it, I mean, it, it can be sometimes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this is in a rock shelter located in LaGuardia in northern Spain. That's what it's called. And it's called the Portan Latinum. Uh, and it's not, Latinum has uh, no relation to the Ferengi currency. <laughs> not yet. And not, that's Latinum. Not currency. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this was first excavated in 1991, again, northern Spain. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a mass grave where, again, 5,000 years ago, men, women, and children with head trauma and arrow wounds were buried. It's pretty easy to see that. Yeah. I mean, they've been able to analyze the skeletons more recently just in an effort to find out more about these people. Because it like when you look at the picture in the article, like it's just like a huge jumble of bones. Yeah. And I've done some excavations on like mass burial type stuff, but I don't think I've ever been on anything quite as like mixed up and jumbled in this. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So. They they said there were more than 300 skeletons recovered, uh, dating from about 3380 to 3000 BCE. Um, and it's basically one big mass burial, or at least that's what the It's what it looked was. like. It's yeah. what it looked like originally. But yeah. it's also 380 year time span. Like you don't have a mass burial over 380 years. Well, true, but just that's just what they can date it to. It doesn't mean that they were deposited over sure. that many years. It, yeah. it could have been much quicker and they, they actually are finding more evidence based on the injuries mm -hmm. on how quickly and when these people were deposited like this. So yeah, there were dozens of arrowheads and blades along with stone axes and personal adornments also found in the grave. So there's, you know, a lot of yeah. kind of, evidence of some kind of violence and also maybe quick disposal because I feel like personal ornaments might not necessarily have gone into a grave if it were like an official burial situation. Mm -hmm. This does feel more like a quick, oh my God, we have to handle all of these <laughs> dead bodies. So this is what we're going to do. Yeah. 
it was originally thought, and this this is where it comes down to the 380 years is a little more important, uh, given, you know, depending on how accurate that really is, it's yeah. still probably a few hundred years, so. But it was originally thought to be a massacre because of the interwoven nature of the uh, of the skeletons that were found. But now they're saying it looks like these were, these people were all killed in either separate raids or battles over a period of several months or years. Yeah. Not one event. Yeah. There were healed and unhealed injuries on some of the skeletons. And I think what is kind of significant is that they're saying that these people weren't just like rounded up and attacked all at once and murdered, but instead it was just like your typical fighting between people who lived near each other or even people who lived together in a region. So that makes, it does make it more sophisticated when it's that versus just like one group fully murdering another. (laughs) Yeah. 107 of the skeletons had cranial injuries. Most of those were located on the top of the skull and they correspond to blunt force trauma, like from a stone mace or a wooden club. So violent. (laughs) Yeah. Just like cracking somebody. I know. I know. It's crazy, but this is 5,000 years ago. So like, while this might be more sophisticated warfare, it's mm-hmm. still the Stone Age, right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there were five times more males than females with cranial trauma represented. Mm-hmm. For the rest, there were 22 mostly spiral or V-shaped fractures of limbs and 25 injuries to other parts of the bodies. So, kind of all over the place a little bit. Yeah, but interesting that it was five times more males than females with cranial trauma because again that like hitting over the head thing yeah and not only were the men more represented with the head traumas but they were also more represented by what they're calling long-range violence which i think is an interesting term (laughs) because of the evidence of men with arrowhead injuries okay so they were hit over the head and they were also hit with arrows (laughs) so the ones that didn't get hit with arrows got close enough to be smashed over the skull yeah yeah Yeah. so (laughs) interesting right Adolescent and adult males accounted for 97.6% of unhealed trauma and 81.7% of healed trauma for skeletons whose biological sex could be estimated. Yeah. So that is definitely way more than the majority of the the group. Yeah. And the authors say that this means to them that this mass grave represents one or more what they're calling war layers from battles or raids where the involvement of males was dominant. Mm -hmm. They say that you know, some of the reasons for this and, and why it was maybe an, an ongoing thing is that resource competition and social complexity could have been a source of tension, potentially escalating into lethal violence. Hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. And it it makes you wonder if with different excavation techniques, they might be able to like separate out these layers of what do they say? War layers, these layers of different yeah. battles, you know, yeah. I don't really know how you could do that, though. That would be very hard, but it would right. be interesting to see. These late Neolithic communities consisted of a few hundred people, mostly farmers. They cultivated wheat and barley and domesticated sheep, cattle, and pigs. There's also evidence of illness and stress suggesting, and you can see this on the bones, yeah, uh, suggesting food scarcity. And this could have been one of the reasons for the violence as well. It's just people are hungry. Yeah. They're like, hey, you've got food. It's the resource uh, competition, we right? We need food. Yeah. So we're going to come get your food. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It makes you wonder, too, if there's like an equal sized burial from whatever group they were (laughs) battling with somewhere else that we just haven't Mm -hmm. found yet. You know, interregional conflict is suggested with male combatants dying in battle. So yeah, I mean that is, it only makes sense based on the percentages of both males in the pit as well as injuries to the males. They just, it all seems like it's coming from this like sort of violence between the men. 
Yeah, and overall, there were more non-lethal or healed injuries rather than lethal injuries, suggesting that the regional clashes weren't these like epic battles or warfare. They were just skirmishes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but skirmishes where, you know, a number of people were killed, mm-hmm. potentially, because of the uh, the way these guys were buried in there. Or at least they died after a, a certain period of time, you know? Yeah, totally. And it's so, it, it's just one of those weird, like, human behavior things, too, because, like, you got to imagine that if these people had stopped fighting and just worked together, they probably could have had a lot yeah. more resources, you know? Yeah. They could have figured out how to grow more food or maybe in, intermating their animals could have created more animals interbreeding or whatever, like... But instead, human nature and this territorialness, they they were pushed to fight each other rather than mm-hmm. help each other. But you do see really great communities helping each other, too. And those are the ones that that sort of dominate and get bigger in a lot of places. So yeah. it's just a different approach to how to get your resources in an area, I guess. All right. Well, yeah. another thing that got bigger was Bronze Age megastructures <laughs> in uh, Europe. So let's. <laughs> Let's head over there uh, for this next article and see what satellite imagery can do for us back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 245, and we're back in Europe, and this time we're going to see what satellite imagery can find for us. It just makes (laughs) me so sad that, you know, all the times that I just kind of sit there on maps or something, or Google Maps, just looking at satellite imagery of random places... That you I've never made that. any earth-shattering <laughs> discoveries. Or at least well, I could have seen something but not known about it. Yeah, you don't know. Or you see something yeah. and like you probably assume immediately that whatever you're seeing has been documented already. Yeah. But the world is a huge place and there's a good chance that it's not documented. I know. It is. You need all the information to lay over each other to know what you're looking at. As soon as we start applying AI to these these satellite images that are taken on a, on a cycle, basically, mm-hmm. like there isn't a person clicking away at this satellite imagery. It's like these satellites are tasked to image an area and they do it over and over and over again, yeah. you know, to get the whole globe and, and updated circumstances. And they're just, they're just taking pictures on, on autopilot. Yeah, totally. But if we can get some AI applied to this that really understands shape recognition, then maybe some of these things wouldn't go so unknown. Yeah, you know? totally. I think that AI will be a really great application for this kind of work in the future for sure. Yeah. Because they just can quantify what they're seeing quicker and maybe more easily than right. the human eye can, you know? Well, this time we're going to talk about... Uh, Megaforts, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, previously unknown huge Bronze Age sites in Europe. And mm-hmm. specifically, we're talking about these uh, Iron Age constructions. The research for this particular one was led by University College Dublin and researchers in Serbia and Slovenia. Uh, and they compiled images and photos of prehistoric landscape in the Carpathian Basin. And I looked this up, and it's just this 
huge river complex again going through slovenia serbia um, and that whole area right there uh, it's just this river just kind of goes through and, mm-hmm. and there's a, a whole bunch of stuff there we're going to talk about that in a minute um, mm-hmm. but with this effort they found over 100 sites that belonged to what they called a complex ancient society so they're all they're kind of related to each other yeah. right, along this river path yeah these defensible enclosures were precursors to the large hill forts that were iconic examples of bronze age construction the largest sites called megaforts have been known for a few years. One is enclosed by 21 miles of ditches and they are bigger than contemporary citadels and fortifications of the Hittites, Mycenaeans or Egyptians who were the other, you know, large groups of people in this time period who yeah. were building big structures essentially. Yeah, what's new here is that these sites were part of a uh, dense network of closely related and codependent communities, or so they think. Yeah, this is kind of what I was talking about in the last episode, where mm-hmm. these these sort of related communities, it sounds like they were kind of working together rather than against each other, you know, at least yeah. most of the time, which is why they were able to be so successful in this yeah. region. Yeah, it's estimated that at its, at its peak, at this area, had tens of thousands of people living here. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. That's amazing. All spread out across these these smaller settlements, but actually yeah. not that small. As yeah, we're, as we're hearing. Yeah, yeah. The people who lived here are being referred to as the Tiza site group because the Tiza River that flows through here and through several national boundaries. Yeah, Tiza. Am I saying that right? I Tiz- think so. Tiza. T i s z a. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, and that Tiza River is what I looked up, and that whole area is called the Carpathian Basin. Yeah. I was looking for a river called, I don't know, Carpathian something <laughs> or other, but couldn't find it until no, I was looking for the right thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the sites are within 3.1 miles or five kilometers of each other. Archaeologists feel that the communities were cooperative, allowing them to spread out. I love yeah, that. I know. Now, if they, this, were, these if they were closer, they'd have battled a lot more. <laughs> Maybe. These sites are newer, though, than our last segment. So right, this might just represent like the development in this area, anyway, development of people and communities working together rather than against each other, at least in this particular circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. They say that just because of the sheer number of sites and the and the numbers of people within these sites uh, that would have been unlikely for them to be individual chiefdoms competing with each other because they would have you would have seen more evidence of violence and Mm -hmm. things like that you know that being said they did say that there couldn't have been all peace though because there were major innovations in warfare and organized violence during this time as evidenced by the archaeological record yeah so but i guess they weren't fighting with each other they were fighting external forces i don't know yeah maybe i mean like they said earlier, you've got the Hittites, Mycenaeans, and Egyptians that are sort of looming forces in the distance, depending on how far inland they would go to, to you know, find resources. And right. so maybe that's what they were worried about. The societal scale indicates it was definitely a relevant and powerful, you know, group of people on the European scale, for yeah. sure. Like to have this many. And they were well equipped to defend anything that they had. Yeah. My question is, is the, how much ground truthing has happened with these sites that they identified by satellite? Are they sure that what they're seeing is actual sites that can be contributed to this larger group in the area? Yeah. One of the articles I saw, they, they did actually do some excavation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did go out and do some ground truthing. They haven't been able to do all hundred plus sites that they found, right, of course, right. but they have done some and that's what's giving them these more uh, tightly defined, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, ideas about this. Yeah. Society, the ability right? to like draw these conclusions yeah. that they were related. But then my next question too, is like, 
how do we know they were interacting with each other? I guess you need the excavation to see well, trade happening between them or is I, it just proximity related? Yeah, I think they're just saying that they're so close that they would have had to known about each other. Well, obviously they knew about each other, but, yeah. but if they were competing, mm-hmm. they couldn't have been that close. Yeah. You know, like they would have just been fighting with each other all the time. So right. it, it had to, it had to be cooperative on some level. Yeah. Yeah. yeah now maybe sure. there was some minor skirmishes and things like that. Who knows? There always, there is. always are. Yeah. yeah but, for sure. But to be that close to each other and not fighting over resources either meant resources were abundant uh-huh. or yeah, they just, they hmm. were just more cooperative than, than people in similar circumstances. Yeah, for sure. It's really interesting. I love, I love this though, because I don't know. Maybe it's my natural optimism, but I always want to think that like people are working together. Yeah. So to hear a story about a group of people that seems to have been pretty dominant, they, they had access to a lot of resources. They were able to defend themselves and they worked together. It sounds like it was a little bit idyllic, you know, great. Maybe they need to find some mass graves and (laughs) see if they can get a bigger picture into what was really going on there. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, some other people that are getting a bigger picture are uh, archaeologists over in Canada as the ice melts, or at least as it melted a few years ago. Wow, you're on point today. I'm telling you. <laughs> and uh, we're going to find out what they have found under the melting ice in far northern Canada on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 245. And now we're talking about what melting ice can show us. And this is going to be a theme we're going to hear a lot more about as climate change takes down yeah. takes down all the ice around. I suppose we could call it a silver lining of global warming, yeah, maybe. You know. I mean, it's not good overall, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a silver lining for what's under the ice, but it's going to be covering up coastal sites as oh yeah true yeah Yeah. you'd lose one type of site and gain another one i suppose so yeah but i guess the good thing about that from an archaeological perspective is you know we've excavated many 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 coastal coastal sites sites, and it just you just can't see the stuff under the ice until it melts yeah you don't know know what's there i feel like the ice is melting faster than the seas are rising to cover things too or is that just because it's not reported as much i don't know Uh, i don't know it's hard to see sea level rise in some places because yeah where you would see it is in cities and they've got mitigation measures yes exactly yeah Yeah. so i mean if it's rising some in some marsh somewhere that nobody really cares about yeah who's really seeing that yeah i mean people obviously are you know recording sea level rise they know exactly where it is to the center oh i'm sure you can go look that up on google right now and make us sound like dummies i'm just talking like like, average human yeah like just like my knowledge i don't hear about it that as much as you do the the glaciers melting you know yeah so so anyway uh climate change in canada is uh what's revealing this And, and climate change is happening everywhere but the artifacts that we're talking about here were from about seven thousand years ago and and more current than that so mm-hmm. the area is called and you got to look this up this mount edziza and it's e-d-z-i-z-a provincial park and this is i think it's 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 like at the northern end of British Columbia. It's on the border between Alaska and British Columbia, I believe, yeah. or even possibly 
up into whatever territory is. UConn, of, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Still very yeah. much Canada. Yeah. It but, is, but it is on the border with the U.S. because yeah. of Alaska. But mm. crazy far north. So far yeah. north. Yeah. So over the winters of 2017 and 2018, there's an extremely low snowpack. Yeah. And because of that, there's always melting that happens, but because of the low snowfall that happened in those two years, they had a lot more melt than they expected, and they mm-hmm. were revealing areas that hadn't been seen, at least they hadn't been there to see it. Yeah. You know, somebody's actually got to go there because it's a pretty remote place. Yeah. But uh, in, in 2019, they were able to survey the area and find some cool stuff. Yeah. It's like a perfect example of almost like salvage archaeology, right? Because yeah. I don't think they're finding like fully fully formed sites or anything. These are places that have been underneath glaciers. Mm -hmm. What they're hoping to find is misplaced items and lost things, right? Like that's the kind of stuff that they're finding, but, and it taps into something I love so much. It's the missing majority, right? Mm -hmm. Because these are things that have been preserved perfectly because of the, the snow and the ice. And so you get the items that don't normally get preserved that are in pristine condition. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah the park itself is a volcanic landscape, which makes sense because the, the Cascade mountain range and the other mountain ranges down here in the United States and in, in Canada there, they're all volcanic, uh-huh. right? They all came up in the, the whole ring of fire thing. Yeah. And uh, so that makes sense. But yep. this whole landscape was significant to one of Canada's first nations called the Taltan, T-A-H-L-T-A-N. Mm-hmm. And they use the mountains for seasonal hunts for centuries and still do today. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are massive obsidian quarries found all over the place up there. Yeah. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. About. It's volcanic, right? Yeah. Like volcanoes make obsidian. Yeah. So the cool thing about this particular research is that they studied nine ice patches over the summer of 2019 and found 56 perishable artifacts, which is super cool. And the ice... You would think the ice was like almost too heavy and would just squish them, and I think they did, but it also preserved them it enough. Did. Yeah. yeah, if they fell into cracks and things like that, then they yeah. would have been preserved without being squished or destroyed, you know? Mm-hmm. Most of the perishable, perishable artifacts are made of wood, and they include, oh my gosh, some of the coolest things I've ever <laughs> yeah. seen. You have to go look at the photos in this article yeah, that I we're linking to. It's just so neat. It includes a birch bark container, birch, exactly what you think it looks like the white with the little black lines on it and a container made out of it projectile shafts and walking staffs Mm -hmm. a lot of wooden things that don't often preserve yeah we just don't get that kind of stuff we have to we have to make assumptions based on the other things left behind the bits of you know stone and even metal if they had it but we don't get this kind of stuff it's so cool there were other artifacts made using animal remains as well and a stitched hide boot so cool cool. i did find that one hard to like mentally put together when i was looking at the picture of it i'm like how did they know that this was a boot but it's so cool a shoe shape to it yeah i I guess it kind of (laughs) did i'm wondering where the foot was that was in it you know you don't just lose a boot in the cold oh yeah probably not well how did all this stuff get deposited here yeah that's another question this article seems to be more about the things themselves and not the context that they were found in exactly. So, but I think it's because of the glaciers. They, they are out of context because of that. Yeah. Yeah, So you just don't have it. Yeah. There were also carved antler and bone tools, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Two of the bark containers, this is really neat because they found more than one bark container, of course, but two of the bark containers were 2000 years old. It was created with a piece of bark that is folded with two rows of stitching along one side. And there was some stitching material left in the, in the holes that you could see. Yeah. That's so cool. So they just took it, took a piece of bark, they folded it over 
And then they like stitched up a side of it, right? Like I mean, such a great use of a flat piece of thin material. You could make just about anything if you just like lay it out, fold it, and then stitch it up the sides. So there's a little inside joke coming here. <laughs> I'm like dying. <clears throat> I'm Rachel, dying over here. Rachel claims to know how to knit. <laughs> I do know how to knit. I knit lots of things. And I, I wanted a case for my 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 wireless keyboard uh-huh. a long time ago when I was carrying it around with me. Uh-huh. And uh Thought that her, you thought you knew it. better how I could knit that for you. Right. What resulted and was nothing. Nothing. Yeah, because I, nothing I was so it. mad at you for yeah. trying to manage my, my knitting. Right. <laughs> well, All these right. guys definitely did it the way that you suggested that I should do it. And I did not. But it worked for them because this is a yeah. nice flat material, thin, and that one row of stitching would just zoop, just like hold it all together. Very cool. Another Bark keyboard case dating to 1400 years ago. <laughs> Had, uh, <laughs> I'm really glad we're exposing our like marital arguments from 15 years ago on this podcast right now. Indeed. It's like super fun yes. for me. So this Bark <laughs> keyboard case, again, dating to 1400 years, was uh, had sticks stitched into the sides, suggesting it was part of a reinforced oh. basket used for transporting heavy loads. Oh, yeah, so, totally. like lots of keyboards. <laughs> yeah. Because they were heavy yep. back then. You know, uh-huh. they weren't, uh, keyboards were very yeah, heavy. They were very heavy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There was also a moccasin-like boot made of stitched animal hide dating to 6,200 years ago. That's fabric. Crazy. Yeah, it's just so cool. And that's the one I was saying that it's like almost hard to even see the shape. And they must have, when you look at it too, it's in a bunch of different pieces. So they kind of had to like sort of reconstruct it a little bit, put it back together, figure out what went where to even figure out what it was. So, yeah. yeah. This last one was super cool to me and they had a really cool picture of it too, but uh, there was a 5,300-year-old oh, yeah. antler-shaped ice pick. So cool. Mm. It had one sharpened point and then another one blunted as though it was used as like a hammer. Yeah. Right? It actually kind of had three points on it. Like one would be like the handle yeah. and you've got one side where you can you can pick at and, yeah. and chip away at ice and then you flip it around and you've got a blunt side to just like pound yeah. stuff. Yeah, so cool. One of the things that we always talk about in research that we're skeptical of is whether or not something is a tool, right? Yeah. Like that's always a big topic of conversation because people will say things are tools and it's like, oh, are they really a tool? You call me a tool all the you, time. <laughs> well, <laughs> you are going oh, on. <laughs> no, if you look at the pictures of this though, it is so obviously a handmade tool. Yeah. There is no other reason or explanation for what you're looking at. And I just think that that is so cool because this thing is over 5,000 years old. Yeah. Just amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. There were also millions of obsidian flakes. Yeah. Which we've been in these volcanic areas in Nevada and yeah. Washington and Oregon. And it's just when you get these areas where obsidian's abundant, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody cared about what they were doing and where they were finding stuff. Like a lot of times when you have a quarry, there's there's a lot of care taken because mm-hmm. the quarry might be hard to get to or something like that. But when there's obsidian up in those hills, mm-hmm. my God, the, the obsidian, they just find it anywhere they want and then they crack it to pieces. Yeah, you practically don't need to do anything else to it yeah. because it's just so naturally sharp. Yeah. But then, and I've worked obsidian just a little bit, like not a lot. Mm-hmm. I tried it like one time and it's so hard to make a shape out of it because it fractures so easily. Yeah. It, it's hard to have control over the shape that you're making. But like you can see the one picture in this article, they have a hand-sized right. like bifacial pointy thing. It was probably going yeah. to become some kind of spear or projectile point, but like to have that much control, it just always blows my mind whenever we see these beautiful obsidian artifacts. That's the thing though with obsidian is like you said, if you want something like a small 
refined projectile point, that takes skill. Yeah. Skill and practice and some really good knowledge. Even yep. you know back then, it wasn't just something everybody could do probably. True. But if you just need to slice up some animal hide or something like that, I mean, any any person can literally go just like bang two rocks together. Yeah. One of them is obsidian and come up with a flake that has a sharp enough edge to cut something. Absolutely. Off. Does not need to be refined. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You need both like a lot of skill on the one hand to make the yeah. one type of thing, but then also basically anybody can use yeah. it. It's, it's really cool. Well, the reason you find these lithic landscapes, especially with obsidian is because obsidian's glass. Mm-hmm. And even if it breaks naturally, you know, from just tumbling down a hillside or something like that. But if somebody's just trying to expediently make something and they start cracking a couple of rocks together, I mean, you're going to end up with hundreds of flakes just from that one two mm-hmm. minute operation. Yeah. And they're going to be all over the place. So uh, in these lithic, lithic landscapes, like we call it, it's just millions and millions of obsidian yeah. flakes from doing those kinds of activities and probably natural ones. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we both worked on a quarry in Nevada and it is, it's almost overwhelming the yeah. amount of debris that's there and some is natural and some is not. And you can't even really identify a natural flake versus a man-made flake. You can, but it takes so much effort that right. I think we were really just looking for tools because yeah. it's like, look, these are all flakes. We know that these are flakes and some are human and some are not. So let's just find the tools and like that's, that's as good as we can do. All right. Well, that's about as good as we can do on this show. These, <laughs> these two human tools are going to go do something else. I thought so. we decided you were the tool, not I'm me. I'm pretty sure we're both tools. <laughs> wow. I'm offended. All right. So for the next show, uh, hopefully a lot of you guys are off this week if you're listening yeah. to this in real time. And uh, even if you're not and it's two years later or whatever the case may be, first, thanks for listening to our back catalog. Become mm-hmm. a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, <laughs> arcpodnet.com forward slash members. <laughs> and also... I'm going to call us out to make yeah. sure we do it. But yeah. next episode We're is going to be about the Netflix series called Cave of Bones. Yes. Is it a series or one show? It's one documentary, one like about an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. So it's not a huge commitment. Right. If you've heard in the past of Rising Star Cave in South Africa. We've was, talked about it. We've talked about it. It's yeah. one of the most famous caves I mean, in history, yeah. because of so much material been found there and so yeah. many things. But there, there were some more recent revelations made about some discoveries there over the summer, and they put together this whole documentary about it. Mm-hmm. And so we are going to talk about it. So if you yeah. have Netflix, go watch it. If you don't have Netflix, we're going to link to this in our show notes because I actually wasn't able to get it when we were watching this because I was I was in a hotel room <laughs> working. Yeah, Netflix bans yeah. you from like watching things outside of your area now. So yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to watch something and the Explorers Club, which is a a, a huge club of, of explorers, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Lee Berger, who is the guy who who is the major lead author on this for these discoveries, gave a talk because he's a member of the Explorers Club and mm-hmm. he gave a talk at the Explorers Club in New York in September or October of 2023, sometime oh, around that time Oh, very recent. Well, right around the time yeah. when the show was coming out. Yeah. And, uh, or they were talking about That was about like it. late summer that the show came out, but there's been like yeah. this constant media train right. basically since then. Yeah. But he gave a really good talk with images and videos and it's really kind of a behind the scenes outside of the documentary aspect mm-hmm. of it. And it was a little over an hour long with questions at the end. And it yeah. was ex- incredibly well done. You can find that on YouTube. Yeah. So just type in Cave of Bones on YouTube and you'll find the Explorers Club talk. Yep. So. And then we're going to talk about it next week and we will have links to all this stuff then too. Yep. But it would, it'll be fun to have watched it ahead of time or listen to something about it so that you could hear, I'm sure we're going to start debating. That's how we do. So yep. we're going <laughs> to, we're going to have lots of fun debates yeah. in the next show. Was it a Cave of Bones or a Room of Bones? <laughs> oh 
you decide. <laughs> All right. Back in, back next week. Not in a minute. No, nope, not week. in a minute. Maybe a minute, depending on how For you're For us, maybe. But if you're on our back catalog, it will be a minute. Okay, sure. All right. See you in a minute. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.